Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the sixth edition of Digital Detectives, brought to you by our terrific sponsor, Applied Discovery, an international leader in electronic discovery. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises uh, Incorporated. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, we'll be talking about ethical issues in e-discovery. We are pleased to have as our guest Dave Reese, a partner at Thorpe Reed Armstrong in Pittsburgh. We frequently had the pleasure of lecturing with Dave on the national circuit, so we're very pleased that he could join us today. Welcome, Dave. Uh, thanks. It's always a pleasure to work with you. <laughs> well, we try to make sure you can do that as often as possible, and, and we do apologize to our listeners for John's voice. I've been sick for two weeks, and as I'm getting well, I seem to have managed to pass my contagion on to him, so he's a little husky sounding today. Just just to flesh out Dave's bio, he focuses his practice in the areas of environmental, commercial, and technology litigation. He chairs the firm's e-discovery and records management group. He's a graduate of Boston College's School of Law and is a nationally known author and speaker on a wide variety of topics, including electronic discovery. So let's move on to our topics. Dave, I think we've known you to lecture more about the ethics of e-discovery than anything else. How did that become such a hot topic for you? Well, as a starting point, I prefer to use professional responsibility uh, rather than just ethics, and that's because ethics is sometimes used narrowly to deal, you know, just with the rules of professional conduct, and I like to deal with, with the broader package of obligations that attorneys have. So back uh, years ago, uh, I started working with uh, professional responsibility and lawyers' use of technology generally, uh, and it was a very you know, strong interest for my teaching and speaking. When I moved into e-discovery, probably about 10 years ago, professional responsibility was a natural area of interest. It, it seems as though a, a huge percentage of our cases uh, recently that we've heard about in, involve sanctions. Why, why do you think that's so? Well, well, part of it, uh, you, you hit the word with once that we hear about. I, I would think that sanctions are probably a relatively small percentage of e-discovery disputes, particularly when you consider ones that are settled or ones that are resolved with a simple court order without an opinion. But sanctions cases get a lot of attention. Uh, they're also more likely to lead to written opinions than other kinds of cases. But in terms of numbers, uh, there was a Duke uh, article last month that reported that up to the beginning of 2010, there were 401 cases involving motions for e-discovery sanctions, and 230 of those, or a little over half, actually imposed sanctions. So there are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. I, I saw that report. That was pretty amazing. Um, when we've lectured with you about ethics and a discovery, I know you're fond of talking about the five C's, as you call them. Can you tell our listeners what they are? Sure. They're a, a shortcut way of remembering both the ethics and the broader professional obligation uh, responsibilities of attorneys when they're dealing with e-discovery. And they're five words. They all start with C. There's competence, confidentiality, communications, candor, and cooperation. So they're the five C's. Which one, Dave, do you think is violated the most often? Probably cooperation. <laughs> yeah, lawyers are not naturally cooperative. <laughs> Sharon and I have often talked about whether candor to the tribunal is something that's vanishing over time. 
Is it your sense that there's a great absence of candor in cases involving electronic evidence? Uh, I mean, it depends on how you define candor. You know, I think there's very few attorneys, both before e-discovery and today with e-discovery, who tell outright lies to judges. Uh, Sadly, there's some, a few who do, but, you know, that's not the general problem. I think there are four areas where there are problems in candor with e-discovery, and it seems to be pretty common. You know, the first is overstatement. Uh, Judge, we've given them everything. It's impossible to do any more. Uh, Second is a statement without an adequate basis or an adequate understanding. Uh, third is failure to make a full disclosure, so uh, failure to tell the whole truth. And, and then finally, a failure to correct misstatements. So it's true when an attorney makes it, but he or she then finds out that it's, uh, you know, that, that it was wrong, and uh, they're slow to tell the other party and to tell the court that there was a mistake and it needs to be corrected. So when you look at it over that whole array, particularly the, you know, the, the less uh, deliberate part, uh, I think there's unfortunately a lot of it in e-discovery. Do you think that's because do you think that's because they really don't know, Dave? To a to to a large degree it is, but not always. Well, that that kind of segues into my question, which is competence uh, is certainly one of our major problems. Uh, Every bar association across the country is offering CLEs involving e-discovery. So I I find it hard to understand why attorneys are having such a tough time coming up to speed on this subject. Um, Why do you think that is, Dave, and what can we do about it? Well, I think it's something we have to keep working at. I think we've made a lot of progress in the last 10 years. But the fundamental problem, in my view, is that most attorneys don't have technical backgrounds, uh, so they don't have the basic knowledge. Uh, Some attorneys uh, recognize that they need to learn it and make some effort to learn. Others don't have an interest in learning any more about about technology than they have to. And I think to be competent, it takes, you know, one of three things, or or a combination of the three, actually. Uh, First, the attorneys have to know the law and technical issues. Uh, Second, they have to learn them. Or three, they have to consult with others who have the technical and legal knowledge. And for each attorney to practice competently in this area, uh, they have to have the right combination of all three of those. And, and as a starting point, I think everybody has to know enough to understand what they know and what they don't know and to know when they need help from uh, competent sources. So, so Dave, what what ethical violation do you think is most common in in e-discovery and why? Well, it flows right from the last question. I I think it's a lack of of competence, perhaps also a lack of diligence with it. But again, it's because uh, attorneys have not uh, learned what they they need to learn. And and when we talk about ethical violations, I think it's important to make a distinction. You know, I I put uh, sanctions that we were talking about before and ethical violations as kind of two different circles that, that overlap somewhat, uh, but they're, they're certainly not uh, coextensive, you know, particularly in jurisdictions that uh, will award sanctions for negligence. Uh, a, a, an attorney may be negligent, uh, but not go far enough to, to violate the ethics rules. Uh, sanctions also may be uh, imposed because of a client's conduct, even though the attorney has made his or her best efforts to uh, have the client do the right thing. So, uh, again, the most common, I think, are, are lack of competence and, and, and diligence. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Applied Discovery.
Supply Discovery, a global leader in complex litigation preparation and management, combines subject matter expertise and innovative e-discovery technology in a complete and proven process. From litigation readiness to collection, analytics, processing, document review, and production services, we manage your entire process with dedicated project managers to ensure quality and workflow efficiency. With our team, including former practicing attorneys and technology experts, Applied Discovery can help you successfully navigate the challenges of complex discovery. Discover Applied Discovery today at AppliedDiscovery.com. Need the latest on e-discovery-related topics? Check out our new e-discovery center right here on the Legal Talk Network. You'll find podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more. Just visit our homepage at LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the eDiscovery Center logo. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to Dave Reese, a litigation attorney and partner with Thorpe Reed Armstrong, about ethics and e-discovery. Dave, one of the things we've seen a lot in the Qualcomm case is probably a good example, is that it's very, very hard for outside counsel to a large company to go head to head with their client, even when they have reason to know that perhaps a ball is being hidden or that things are not as being done as they should be. Um, how can we correct that? Well, as a starting point, I don't think there are major issues where the requirements are clear. Uh, you know, most in-house counsel want to do the right thing. And uh, many times the in-house counsel know more about electronic discovery and electronically stored information uh, than the outside. I-, I think there are two areas of, of potential problems. One, uh, it's more of a problem when there are gray areas involved and there aren't clear requirements in trying to you know, sort them out and understand what, the- what they are. Uh, you know, a second area is how far you have to go, how deeply do you have to dig, how much diligence do you have to exert in, in trying to find things. And, and, you know, there can be areas of, uh, of disagreement there. But I think the two main ways of managing it are, are communication and education. Uh, judges are, you know, making it increasingly clear that it's litigation counsel who are responsible to the court. Uh, they're on the firing line, and they have to understand the ESI issues that involve that are involved in the case. So, I mean, it's perfectly all right if a company wants to do a lot of the e-discovery in-house, uh, as long as the litigation counsel uh, makes uh, get, provides guidance to the extent necessary and is enough involved in the process and makes deep enough inquiry uh, that they can you know face the court and say you know yes we're doing the right thing. Uh, I think it's a rare case that you get into the situation where something is clearly discoverable and an in-house attorney would try to make excuses you know why you shouldn't have to do it. Uh, you know, you might have discussions along those lines, but I, I, I think in the end, as long as you have the communication and, and the education, uh, things work pretty well as long as everybody exerts enough effort. Dave, when you uh, lecture to audiences, what do, what do you think is most surprising to them when you when you talk about e-discovery and, and ethics? Well, when you're when you're dealing with the people who are new to e-discovery and kind of the e-discovery 101 uh, classes, I think it's the potential complexity and volume of the electronically stored information. I think that you know that's the first thing that's kind of surprising to them. And, and once they understand the the technical and, and volume difficulties. 
uh, it, it's the council's duty to understand it. That, uh, you know, we don't have to co become computer scientists or uh, system specialists or things of that nature, uh, but we have to know enough about both the technical and legal issues to be able to deal with it, to be able to ask the right questions and, and to help, you know, working with the technical people to come up with the right answers. As you know, Dave, uh, judges have been very critical of their own judicial management of cases. Uh, we saw that in the Duke conference particularly. Uh, do you think that a stronger stance and more involvement by the bench and maybe using some of the rules that already exist more effectively, that that can clean up some of the ethical breaches we've seen? Uh, yes, I think it can help to, to eliminate both ethical breaches and conduct leading to sanctions, even if, if, if it doesn't amount to uh, ethics violations. Uh, as they find in the Duke Conference, the rules are there and judges should be strong in enforcing them. Uh, you know, ethical breaches by attorneys, I don't think are, are all that common, although they happen too often. You know, in an example in the, the Duke Law Review article that we talked about before, uh, there were 230 cases in which sanctions were imposed, and only 30 of those involved uh, sanctions against attorneys. Uh, and, you know, of those 30, I would think that, that a small percentage uh, probably involved actual violation of the ethics rules. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of, uh, of good news from, from that perspective. But, you know, I think the, the, the rules for managing e-discovery and imposing appropriate sanctions are there, uh, and that the misconduct would go down if judges would, you know, take on a stronger management role and use the rules that are there. Why do you think the judges haven't been so quick to do that? Uh, I think some of them want to give attorneys a break because they understand the challenge uh, that attorneys are facing in e-discovery. Uh, you know, I think to a, a long, a large degree, judges want to think the best of attorneys rather than the worst, so they give them the benefit of the doubt. But but I think that is changing. And, you know, again, there's there's been all this criticism of, you know, how uh, costly e-discovery is and, and how that's a, a really difficult part of our litigation. And case management is, is a large uh, part of the answer to that, both case management by the courts in making parties comply with the rules and case management by, you know, individual counsel of, of their client's data. Dave, is, is there anything else you can think of that would be a big help in ensuring attorneys comply with their ethical duties with respect to e-discovery? Well, I, I think it goes back to, you know, what we've been talking about all along, and that's a focus on gaining greater competence uh, and knowing when to seek uh, qualified assistance. Uh, because I, I don't think most of the ethics violations or the, the situations leading to sanctions are intentional. I mean, some are, and I put them off to the side, but a lot of them, uh, you know, occur because attorneys uh, don't make the effort to learn what they need to do uh, and then to carry it out. So, I, you know, I think that's a, a large part of uh, eliminating ethical problems. Do you have a, a single favorite case or, or maybe two that you would point out as well worth reading in this area so that people can come up to speed on some of the problems that their brethren have gotten into? 
Well, it's hard to pick out a, a, a single case or even two because now there's probably about 10 to 15 e-discovery must-reads, uh, you know, like the Zubalake opinions, uh, you know, moving on to the current Victor Stanley and uh, uh, pension committee cases. But in the area of professional responsibility, one case that I really like to point out is Judge Grimm's decision in uh, Mancia. You know, I mean, it's an opinion that uh, stresses the duty to cooperate and uh, chides the uh, attorneys for not doing it in, in that case. And, and there the judge faulted uh, both parties uh, in a discovery matter. And uh, he, he also uh, pointed out the importance of the certification under Federal Rule 26G. And that's the rule that requires attorneys who are sending discovery requests uh, and responding to discovery requests to certify by their signature that they've made a reasonable inquiry uh, and that the, the request and the answers uh, comply with the uh, e-discovery rules. Uh, and as part of that, he stresses the, uh, another important current concept of proportionality. Uh, when you send discovery requests to the other side, you're certifying that what you're asking for is proportional to what's at dispute, is in dispute in the case. So I think it's a case that, that uh, you know, is, is a well-written opinion that pulls together a number of the professional responsibility uh, considerations, uh, you know, uh, again, stressing the uh, duty to cooperate that uh, Sedona has been advocating. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, the attorney certification that Judge Grimm talks about, I can't remember another case that focused on that. Do you, do you remember any other cases that have talked about that? I don't remember any before that. I think there were a couple not not as high profile of cases that have talked about it later. But I mean th that is certainly the the first major e-discovery case that I'm aware of that uh, you know raised the importance of attorney certification. You know, one one of the things too that I think attorneys don't know a lot this proportionality. Many of them seem to think it's new, but of course it's really written in Rule 26. Um, but they they seem not to understand that. Although there have been several new opinions which have addressed it very explicitly. But that, that's been a big issue, too, don't you think? Yes, it, it has. And it, you're absolutely right. It's, it's been there since day one. Uh, I don't know that it was in the original federal rules back in the 40s, but it's been in Rule 26 for years. And it's, you know, basically that the, the you know, cost and expense of, of the discovery has to be proportional to a number of things, including what's in dispute in the case. But I had an interesting discussion uh, at a CLE program a couple weeks ago where we were talking about that, and a, a plaintiff's employment attorney pointed out that uh, you just can't look at proportionality in terms of dollars because, you know, he's often dealing with civil rights and employment rights uh, that, that can have, uh, you know, a value well beyond the, the dollars that are involved. So he said he is always going to argue where a defendant says that it's not proportional to uh, the amount in dispute, uh, that you are dealing with rights that you can't just put dollar values on. So it, it's an interesting concept that I think we're going to see more of. Yeah, I've, I've been reading uh, quite a few num number of cases where they've talked exactly about that, that um, when it, when it's cases, which I think one, one uh, judge said that only involves filthy lucre, uh, nothing but money case, that's all it's about, then you can use the dollars, but if it involves some kind of uh, civil rights or some some something else, some kind of human right, uh, then in that case it may be uh, proportionality may weigh differently and not just be about the dollars. 
Dave, do you think we're, we're going to be fighting the same ethical demons as the e-discovery evolves? Or do you have any optimism we're going to see the situation improve? I, I think we're going to see the situation improve. Uh, you know, as, as more attorneys, again, it's back to the, you know, to the uh, education and, and learning what needs to be done. Uh, but it's going to take time and there are going to be continuing challenges because as, you know, attorneys, uh, who, who are basically starting from from ground zero uh, to learn about e-discovery, start learning the technology and the e-discovery rules and everything is kind of a package, we're going to see technology changing and we're going to see more challenges uh, arising. So I think it's going to be a, a constant battle, but I think we are going to make at least some headway. Ah, I, I take it then you think we're going to be lecturing together on this subject for a long time. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, I, I don't think the uh, need for learning or the interest of audiences is going to go away. <laughs> then I see many more nice dinners in Pittsburgh in our future. <laughs> Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, this area has been a really hot topic for the last couple of years, and, and I don't see it ending. So thanks again for providing your uh, your insight. Okay. It's always great to work with you guys. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at www.legaltalknetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's Computer Forensics Technology and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.